live from Springfield, Ohio, it's Voices in My Head, the official podcast of Rick James. I am Rick Lee James, and you're listening to Voices in My Head. If you hear this voice today, do not turn in the window. Welcome back, listeners, once again to episode number 40 of Voices in My Head. I'm Rick Lee James, and I am your host on this podcast today. Haven't even recorded the interview yet. That's going to be happening in like 20 minutes from now by my time, and we're going to have a special guest for our 40th podcast today. Ben DeBono of the Sci-Fi Christian Podcast is back with us once again. Couldn't be more thrilled about it. We're going to have a conversation over Skype here in just a few minutes, and uh, we're going to talk about Ben's um, recent conversion to Catholicism after um, years being a minister in the Baptist denomination, and uh, we're going to talk about some misconceptions of the Catholic Church. We're going to talk about um, how uh, basically their theology really is the basis, I think, of of all of our faith, and so um, it's going to be an interesting conversation. Maybe we can uh, dispel some myths as well as answer some questions that some viewers may have, but there's a few things I need to do beforehand. Uh, getting to that. I don't know how long we're going to go today. If it goes too long, uh, because it sounds like an interesting conversation, maybe I'll split it into two podcasts. I usually record the interview first, and I know exactly how it's going to go. Today, I don't do that. I'm trying something new. I'm I'm trying to get the pre-show stuff done right now. Um, Let me say, first of all, um, I want to say thank you so much. Uh, You viewers, viewers, you listeners need to know this. Um, If you're viewing it, you're just staring at your iPod at a screen with words on it, I'm sure. But um, you need to know this, that we almost uh, we almost had to end the podcast last week because as a lot of you know, maybe you don't know, the bigger you get, the more listeners you have, the more shows you put out, the more space you need online. And uh, I don't have much money. I still have only gotten like maybe one or two donations, and they've been very small donations. Um, and it costs roughly between four to six hundred dollars uh, to put this podcast on the air every year. So it's just more than we have. And um, last week I'd reached my limit as far as memory goes, and I thought the podcast was going to be over, or at least I was going to have to delete most of my previous shows, and I didn't want to do that because um, there's some great shows on there, especially like with Michael Card and Andrew Peterson and Jason Gray and different ones, Uh, Eddie Kirkland, I mean, just tons of people. Um, that, That were great interviews, great guests to have on the show. I didn't want to get rid of those. So I went to the Lord, and in doing that, I also went to you, the listeners, and I posted on the page that we're in need of funds. If you want this podcast to continue going, I need some help. I was hoping I would get, you know, a handful of listeners to donate $10 here and there. Um, I wasn't getting any response. And that night, um, someone who wants to remain anonymous uh, messaged me, asked me how much I needed. And I said, well, this is how much it is, so I'm hoping to get donors. And this person said, "Uh, I'll have you a check tomorrow. Uh, The only stipulation is, don't tell anybody who I am. And uh, I said, I'll be very disappointed and we'll never do anything like that again if you tell who I am. So I just want to say 
thank you so much uh, because because of you we're on the air this week and I'm able to put another podcast out I just I wasn't able to afford it any other way all I can say is God is good his people are amazing and uh, thank you for caring enough to help continue the show to keep going I'm going to do my best to continue to bring you the best podcast that I can with that being said um, it's I'm not kidding when I say I need donations um, that's a one-time thing but every year there are these annual costs that come up and we're just about to the end of another year so if you guys can spare anything I mean it doesn't even matter if it's five bucks or something if you can go to my website at rickleyjames.com go to the link um, that it says uh, donations I believe and tip jar um, and can donate something if you want to sponsor a show I'm more than happy to let you do that in the future, but I want to keep this going. Um, but mostly all this was to say thank you and to say, you know, I really do want this to be a community thing. And in order to do that, I have to have your help to keep it going. I only have so much money. Um, I, I'm not made of it for sure. Um, matter of fact, well, I, I, I don't have a lot to say about money other than don't have it. So anyway, thank you again for helping out with the podcast. Uh, if you have been enjoying this show, um, the podcast award nominations have begun. And uh, if you don't know what the podcast awards are, uh, it's a, a organization online that it's kind of like, you know, every... Every different genre has their award shows. You know, uh, you got the uh, the Grammys for Music Awards. Um, you got, uh, why am I blanking? The Tony Awards, I believe, for um, Outstanding Performances in Theater, um, Emmy Awards, different things like that. Well, there's a Podcast Awards online, and you, the listeners, get to go there and vote on it. So if you go to a Podcast podcastawards.com uh, have several podcasts in mind not just this one but if you go intending to vote for this one don't waste your vote uh, by only putting mine in make sure you have other podcasts in mind if you go to rickleyjames.com uh, I do have uh, some of my favorite podcasts on there some links uh, I even have the sci-fi Christian which is where my guest today is from uh, Ben DeBono where you can go and vote for all these podcasts and if you don't think mine is worthy of a podcast award certainly don't vote for it, uh, but it would be great to get some feedback. They actually do give prizes to the winners, which includes a lot of bandwidth and uh, some money to help the show continue going and staying on the air. And we could always use that, but I do want it to go to the worthy person. So if you've enjoyed it at all and want to go to podcastawards.com, just go ahead and make a nomination. Voting will happen later on, but I believe nominations only go on, I think, until October 15th. So maybe like a week longer from right now. So anyway, um, that is all as far as that goes. Uh, But thank you for for listening. Thank you for supporting this show. I want to let you know that the live DVD is coming along well. This week, I went to Out of Truth Records recording studio and got to listen for the first time to my live concert that I recorded last month and uh, start to finish. And um, I got to tell you what I had prayed for, hoped for, Um, expected. All of that was met and more. I think it's even better than I had hoped for. The crowd was singing along with all the songs in just the right places. The music sounds great. Uh, John Finney is an amazing um, just engineer and producer, and he did a great job on that. So, 
Um, he's in the last stages, I believe, of uh, mixing that down, uh, getting ready to master it and send it over to Media Explosion to have it transferred uh, the sound over to the video for DVD. So I just wanted to let you know that that's coming. Very excited about it. So I thought I would do something today, just kind of wet your whistle. If you weren't able to be at the concert, um, this is a song that I sang at the Basement Psalms concert. I'm going to go ahead and play it for you here on the show, but it's not the same version. It's a studio uh, recording that I just did here in my home. It's a demo. To be honest, I don't even think the vocals are that great on it, but it gives you an idea of what the song would sound like. We're still toying with the idea of making a full studio album out of this project. And so this is a demo of Psalm 8, How Majestic Is Your Name. I have not released this to to the public before, and uh, so I just want you to hear it. Um, this is one of the songs that's on the Basement Psalms concert that I do live, although live it's just me with a acoustic guitar and a crowd of people singing and Brandon Hancock singing with me, so there's no harmonies or anything on this yet, and like I said, it's a scratch vocal because it's a demo, but um, I think you get the picture, but just as a way to kind of wet your whistle for some of the songs you're going to hear, uh, here's my demo version of Psalm number 8, How Majestic Is Your Name, a song that will be out on Basement Psalms very soon, God willing. Just to get 
our Lord How majestic is your name How majestic is your name How majestic is your name in all the earth Psalm number eight from my uh, upcoming uh, Basement Psalms album. Although, again, that was the recorded studio demo. That's not actually what you're going to hear on the live album. Uh, but I wanted to let you hear the song anyway and just remind you that the live DVD is coming along quite well. Um, what else do I have for you? I, I want to remind you we do have a new... Uh, new Twitter feed, I guess it would be Voices in My Head, P is the name on that, so if you're on Twitter and uh, you like to follow Twitter stuff, we got like over, I think like a hundred followers last week, so let's try to do another hundred followers this week, that would be great, um, with, with it being a new account, that's that's awesome, I love getting uh, so many new listeners at one time, That's I'm kind of floored by that actually, so uh, go to Twitter, and you, when you go to Twitter and sign up uh, to follow the postings of Voices in My Head P, the P stands for podcast, you can actually participate weekly in something we call Question of the Week. Question of the Week. Well, Question of the Week can be answered every week at VoicesInMyHeadPodcast.com. Just go there and click on Question of the Week. Also, you can go to our Facebook page, you can answer it on Twitter, or you can call in at 937-505-0162, and we will play your recorded audio message on the show, just as long as it's appropriate. And um, anyway, the answers for this week. Well, the question was, who is your favorite fictional villain? I'm looking forward to hearing Ben DeBono's thoughts in just a few minutes on this. Um, the answers we got this week were from Matthew Cole. Says, though not the best antagonist, see school ties, Magoo, Collins played by Anthony Rapp. I think my favorite villain, just because the way he is developed as a whole person and each level is more villain than the next, is Professor Moriarty. So thank you, Matthew Cole, for that. Tony James wrote in, and she said Professor Moriarty is a great villain, but 
probably the villain that has continually freaked her out for years would be the birds from the movie The Birds. I suppose they aren't your typical villains, but seriously, to this day, anytime I see a large group of birds, I get creeped out. That is a creepy movie. Even for an old one, it's uh, it's kind of scary. They were actually playing that in a theater, lo- theater locally not too long ago. I wanted to go see it, but did not because I hardly ever go to the theater. Anyway, um, Brandon Hancock wrote in and said, You probably should have clarified what genre you meant. Uh, he said, For TV, the TV show The Shield, Joe or John Cavanaugh, um, or Arvin Sloan from Alias. In literature, he picks Inspector Javert. Um, notice a theme here with Cavanaugh, he says. In movies, uh, from Fight Club, he picks Tyler Durden. From comics, or sorry, cartoons, he chooses Dr. Claw. He says, really, I'm a fan of all the evil doctors. And uh, that's from Inspector Gadget, in case those of you don't remember Dr. Claw. And from comics, The Joker. And Brandon, I have to say, I love The Joker. I wanted to pick that as my... Uh, I don't think I'm going to answer mine until I talk with Ben here in just a few minutes on the podcast. Um, but without... Any further hesitation, we're going to end this segment called Question of the Week and go into the podcast because in just a couple minutes he's going to be calling and we're going to have this Skype call. And uh, I'm really looking forward to the conversation. I'm looking forward to asking him the Question of the Week. So we're going to go straight from Question of the Week into our interview with the Sci-Fi Christian Podcast co-host, Ben DeBono. Thank you so much for being a part of Voices in My Head today. Dude, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks. Good we're, to be back, Alice. We're actually recording right now, so we're just going to keep it live and, and on the air. So to tell you listeners what happened just a second ago, um, like two minutes ago, Ben called me to do this conversation, and I said, I'm really sorry, I need to go switch the laundry out real fast, so I had to call him right back. <laughs> so nothing but professional broadcasting from this end here on on my end, so... Uh, hey, that's part of the fun of podcasting, right? <laughs> is that we're all doing this in our basements, and so you know, you you get some of those great human moments. I, I think I, we had episodes of the Sci-Fi Christian where my dog was howling in the background throughout. So yeah, uh, we, we may have some of that today with my dogs upstairs too. So yeah, that's just part of the game. Or you know, as on your show, someone will get up to go pee. You know, there, there you go. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Ah, that's great. Well, let me just do a quick introduction for those of you that maybe haven't been listening for too long to Voices in My Head. Uh, Today I have with me the co-host from the Sci-Fi Christian Podcast. His name is Ben DeBono. And he was with me a while back to discuss the movie The Dark Knight Rises, and we kind of did a theological spin on that, and we're just trying to... uh, We weren't really sanctifying the movie or trying to baptize it or anything, but we were just kind of talking about some different themes there. And shortly after that podcast came out, which I've actually gotten a lot of great uh, comments about, um, Ben um, came out with this big announcement that he is going to become a Catholic. He and his family, his wife, and um, and you've been uh, he's been a minister at a church. Um, and I'll let you tell more about this uh, as we go on, but just to give a little update as to why we're doing this, I thought it would be fun to have a conversation today um, about your decision to do this and about Catholicism, because um, Catholicism, Catholicism, I can't even talk today, Catholicism is one of those things 
that for some reason in Protestant circles, it's our kicking dog, you know, and it's almost like, right. well, they're not Christians, they're Catholics, you know, or whatever, and, and I'm like, ah, that's that's not a good way to look at things. So, first of all, let me say, Ben, thank you for, for being back here today on Voices in My Head. Oh, thanks for having me, Rick. It's always a pleasure to come on your show. Well, and uh, I've been enjoying the Sci-Fi Christian lately because just because uh, my name has been mentioned so much on there lately, I feel like I'm part of the show. So, I, yeah, yeah, you're kind of an honorary co-host almost. <laughs> and yeah, and it's because I'm, you know, I have to apologize to Matt because it's it's almost as if you know you're cheating to come over to my podcast, you know, uh, <laughs> on that one. But you've got to uh, make Matt grateful. I know. Me. So, so this helps him be. It helps him with his gratitude. So it's all good. Well, first, it's been great having you back on the show again. I'm I'm glad that your schedule has worked out to be back on the Sci-Fi Christian podcast uh, because the chemistry that you guys have on there is just great. It's it's almost like one of those things. If it was just one of you, um, it just doesn't work as well. But when both of you are together, um, it's just it's just really good. It's fun. It's entertaining. It's deep. And uh, so thanks. And I want to want to endorse that show to all the listeners. Make sure you go listen to the Sci-Fi Christian Podcast. It is one of my favorites, if not my very favorite podcast out there right now. So, well, Thanks so much, Rick. Those were very kind words, and uh, we definitely appreciate all your support. Now, my only, you know, my only thing is I like you guys so much. I got to figure out how to get into a feud with you with my podcast. I think, I think that's one of the, that's one of the most fun things on your show is when you do a feud with another podcast. But um, I just well, love, we'll, we'll put you in the running for 2013. Oh, okay. So I just I just had to figure out something I'd want to fight with you about. I like you guys too much. I can't figure out you know, what I would do. So. Um, well, let's start today, uh, before we get into the, the deep stuff we're going to talk about, we do question of the week here every single week, and um, and this one is kind of a hard one, and I know you are a literature major from way back, so you're going to have not only the experience of lots of good reading, but television shows and movies, and the question of the week this week was, who is your favorite fictional villain? Yeah, this was a very hard one. I, uh, I've, uh, even up to this morning at the point I called you, was kind of debating about how I was going to answer this. Uh, there's really two types of villains that I like. I like the villains who are all-out evil with nothing redeeming about them, kind of in the mold of Heath Ledger's Joker. Mm-hmm. And then I like the villains who are complex, who maybe don't start evil, but become that way over time, or they're generally good people, with the exception that they make one choice to make some evil, kind of in the vein of Walter White from Breaking Bad, if you or your listeners have watched that show. Mm-hmm. And so my choice is going to be one where I try and have my cake and eat it, too, with those two types of villains. And so I'm going to go with uh, John Milton Satan from Paradise Lost, who mm-hmm. is really one of the most interesting literary villains. Uh, the more you learn about Paradise Lost, the more fascinating Satan, the character of Satan in that, that poem becomes. Because Paradise Lost is structured like the great epics. It's structured in the same way that the Iliad and the Odyssey and the Aeneid were all structured. So Milton's intentionally recalling the great epics as he, he's writing this. 
And what's fascinating is that Satan is actually in the the structural position that would traditionally be reserved for the hero hmm. in those great epics. So one of the great literary debates of all time is, is Satan, in fact, the hero of Paradise Lost? Uh, John Milton would say no, because Milton was rather emphatic uh, uh, on that point, and he wasn't trying to uh, be clever in that sense of making Satan a real hero, but his literary structure kind of betrays him a little bit on this. And you could make a strong argument that in Paradise Lost, Satan is the hero and God is the villain. Uh, so that adds a lot of complexity to that character in the poem. But then on the other hand, it's Satan. So you know, yeah, right. he's all out, all out evil. Uh, <laughs> and he leads to the fall of, of humankind later on in the poem. So I think that given that complexity of the villain, but then the fact that, you know, this is the devil we're talking about, yeah. uh, it kind of allows me to have my cake and eat it too with my favorite literary villain. Yeah. Well, actually, last night um, I posted Satan as my favorite fictional <laughs> villain. As well. I must have missed that. Which I think I think you copied me. I'm I'm not sure, but that's that's so there you, now you can certify five feud. That's where the feud came from. That's right. <laughs> no, and, and the reason I said that is because, um, and I, I wasn't using necessarily any other source than the Bible, but um, I, I don't think people realize that so often when Satan is used, he is a personification of of that force or whatever that evil is that is always fighting, you know, against God and against holiness. And, and uh, you know, in the Old Testament, it's it's not so firmed up, but in the New Testament, it seems to take on this character of Satan, and there's all this debate of, you know, is, is he this horny-headed little man running around, or is it this ultimate force or whatever? But, um, yeah, I picked that too, but then I thought, well, that may not be a satisfactory answer to some people. So I had to narrow it down to two other ones for me. One was the Joker, because I think that um, maybe he's more like Satan than anybody I can think of. <laughs> right. Just like pure evil, and, and even yeah. especially like some of the, uh, like Alan Moore's The Killing Joke and things like that. It's, there's something so creepy about somebody that can can do something so evil with a rim shot and a smile, you know? <laughs> right, and, yeah, and, absolutely. And can just laugh about it without remorse. And the other one for me that really, and I know I should just pick one, but Anton Chigurh from the book and the movie um, No Country for Old Men um, is, and in the movie he's played by Javier Bardem, uh, just <laughs> to me one of the most villainous villains of all time. But Yep. Well, yeah, and very Joker-esque in his own right, too. Yeah, very true, and I think that's what, what I, I like about that particular character. I, I guess it's weird to say we like a villain, but, of course, <laughs> you know, you know the, the ultimate villain, and I know you can't disagree with this, is Lex Luthor, who became so evil because Superman blew chemicals on his hair and it made his hair fall out. So, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, which, that, that, that's, that, that, that's a great origin story right there. That, that's the source of pure evil right there. <laughs> Yeah. Which is forevermore cursed people like me who have lost their hair prematurely. Oh, oh no! So now we're the villains. So <laughs> yeah. Well, let's let's move on um, from question of the week, and I'd love for you to just share a little bit of your journey. Um, I, I don't know what I would title this show if it had a title other than we are at episode number forty today, and um, but I think I would say maybe we could just call this going Catholic or something. Works um, for me. 
All right. Well, maybe you could just share a little bit with the listeners about, um, you know, kind of your journey and somewhat what's led you to this, because then I want to talk about some uh, of maybe some of the misconceptions and things and maybe false things that we have in our minds about Catholicism just because of, uh, I don't know if they're bad myths or if they're half-truths based on things that have gotten uh, distorted. But let's start by just maybe telling the listeners a little bit about who you are and, and sort of your faith background and your journey that's led you here. Sure. Well, like you mentioned, I, I uh, was serving for the last few years as a Baptist pastor. And part of that journey for me was going back to school and getting some formal theological training. So I was working on my master's in theology. And over time, working on that degree, theology became far more than just a hoop I was jumping through to say, yes, I'm a good pastor, I've had theological training. It became a major passion for me and a big source of... uh, interest, and I started doing a lot of reading, not only within the classroom, but outside on my own. Uh, an author you and I talked about some last time, N.T. Wright, mm-hmm. became a, a big influence on my thought, and I became very invested in his work. And as you know, Rick, from reading N.T. Wright, uh, he has a very robust theology of the kingdom of God, sure, and, and what the church is, and uh no, N.T. Wright is writing as an Anglican, so he's within the Protestant tradition. But reading his stuff about the kingdom of God and what it, what the church means and how the church is God's covenant people and really this continuation going all the way back to Abraham, it, it shook me quite a bit when I read it because there were things that he was describing that I found convincing that simply didn't fit into my theological categories that I had at that time. Uh, it really challenged me to look at my faith as being far more than just Jesus saving me and you as individuals, mm-hmm. so that's important, uh, and really also including a theology that says Jesus established the Church, and the Church is important. Mm-hmm. And that became a problem then, thinking about it as a Protestant, because we have so many divisions yeah. within the Church. True. You know, some counts would say that uh, there are as many as 30,000 Protestant denominations worldwide. Hmm. And that really started to bother me uh, as I thought about this. Now, I was still a very long way from Catholicism at the time, but that stuck with me, and that was one of those thoughts where once I realized that I had a problem with this, I couldn't shake it. And I spent much of the next year exploring what is this all about and, and what should the Church look like in this biblical model. Um, And I wound up with an ecclesiology, that is, a theology of the Church, very similar to what you would find in Catholicism. And I realized this. And that painted me into a bit of a corner because I was still very concerned about some of the hot-button issues in Catholicism, things like purgatory and Mary and all that, that stuff. And so at the time, I would have said, I can't be Catholic. Uh, I can't be Catholic, but I'm not sure I can be Protestant anymore either, so (laughs) where does that lead me? Uh, And I eventually decided that what I needed to do was give Catholicism a chance on its own terms, especially with some of those hot-button issues. Mm -hmm. I started reading the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which is really the Church's official doctrine, if you will, 
I started reading the early church fathers. And when I did those two things earlier this year, I found that by taking Catholicism on its own terms, a lot of what I thought I knew about those hot-button issues turned out to be incorrect. Hmm. And I realized that not only could I be at peace with those issues, but there was very good reasons to believe them. And kind of the final tipping point for me was when I came to accept the Church's doctrine of authority, uh, that the Church was established to be an authority in the life of believers, and mm. that I, our, what I believed was that my job was to submit to that. And so even on those hot-button issues, at that point it became less an issue of Catholic Church, you prove it to me that you're right on this, and for me became more, as St. Anselm says, faith-seeking understanding, that I believe that the Holy Spirit has guided the Church, mm. and now my investigations are just about understanding why I believe what I believe. Mm. And so all that led me to... Uh, make the jump that me and my family are currently in the process of making. Hmm. Well, that's very interesting, and, and I, I want to get back and let listeners hear more about you and your experience with that, but I, I'll have to say I was very fortunate, um, even though I went to a, a Nazarene university and, and have been in the Church of the Nazarene my whole life, which um, might surprise some people to find this out because we've often been branded as a very conservative um, you know, holiness movement. And when I was in college at Trevecca University, my church history professor, um, I mean, almost turned me Catholic. I mean, and and it was, he was so, um, he was such a brilliant teacher, Steve Hoskins is his name, and did such a great job of helping us connect to the ancient church. And there were moments where I, you know, I had to do some deep praying and you know, I still haven't decided, you know, I've never turned myself wholeheartedly off to if the Lord ever really felt leading me that direction that I would go. But there was such a richness, and the theologians we would study were from the Catholic Church, and understanding that we were all Catholic to start with <laughs> before right. the whole denomination thing, and really understanding that all these misconceptions that I had about the Catholic Church were just, you know, frankly wrong, and that if there was ever going to be for me a connection for the Church of the Nazarene that I could actually feel good about being a minister in that denomination, I was going to have to find out my roots, you know, and, and where I came from. And uh, and so I, I completely understand uh, your journey, I feel like. You know, in, in a lot of ways, I, I feel like I walked it, you know, several years ago myself, and, and it's opened up to me some great dialogue, not only through actual people that I know, but a lot of the reading that I do, you know, comes from people like Thomas Merton or, um, you know, Henry Nowlin or just different people like that that are are wonderful Catholic writers or, or were, you know, <laughs> incredible Catholic yeah. writers and um, really helped me see the true heart of God and the longing for God and his people that is coming out. And I think people just miss that, you know, and, and totally think it's a dead faith and it's over and it's through and and uh, that's such an unfair analysis, I think. But yeah, absolutely. And you're right. Uh, I I think that as you study some of these older theologians, really dip into the tradition, it's going to change you. And even you know, for somebody like you who ultimately stayed within the Protestant tradition, uh, being able to have that 
knowledge and, and have the richness of that tradition to draw on not only helps you as an individual, but then gives you and Catholics common ground uh, sure. for discussions. And that's mm-hmm. just so, so valuable to have. And we need people like that in both traditions. Sure. And I, you know, and I'm, I think it's important, and one reason that I, so to speak, haven't jumped ship on my own denomination is not because I necessarily find myself in wholehearted agreement on every point, but that I feel like, you know, being a part of it, maybe I can help to steer the course in a more, um, in a more faithful, more orthodox direction, you know, <laughs> in some way. Sure. Um, and, you know, we're a very young denomination, but, you know, and, and I'll give you a for instance real quick, and then we can get into some other things, but... One thing that in, in like our articles of faith in the Church of the Nazarene is, um, you know, we put um, the Bible up very high, as it should be, but it, it actually puts the Bible before the Church as far as the authority and the level of authority. And I've argued for many years, I said, well, where did we get the Bible from? You know, you've, you've got to have somebody that wrote this down, decided this was canon, helps us interpret it, and helps us to really understand the Bible in proper context. Otherwise, the Bible, you know, is this ultimate authority with, with no context whatsoever. It's so dangerous. And so right. I, I've argued that several times, and I usually get, you know, shouted down or whatever. How dare you say that about the Bible? <laughs> but I'm always like, no, no, let's let's take a look. At, look at look at tradition and, and find out, because this... That's what the church is. We're not saying, like, the church on your street. We're saying the church universal and the tradition, you know, has said, you know, this is how you interpret these scriptures and things. So, anyway, I don't know if I had any thoughts about that, but that's just one of the, the discussions I've had before that I always point to Catholicism about. So. Yeah, that's uh, quite impressed by your boldness uh, to take on kind of that rigid, interpretation of sola scriptura and the Protestant tradition, uh, and you're right. I, I think that, that was one of the big turning points for me was when I kind of dug into the logic behind sola scriptura and realized, wait a second, um, if it's scripture alone, that sounds really good, but it kind of falls apart logically when you actually dig into it. There has to be, to some extent, even if you reject the majority of the Catholic teaching on the authority of the Church, to some extent, the Holy Spirit must have guided the tradition sure. in establishing the canon. Otherwise, it just doesn't work. You look at Church history in the first, you know, three, four hundred years, you know, wildly different canons floating around oh, yeah. uh, the Church. And, and some of them include less books, and some of them include more books, and some of them are more like the Protestant canon, and some are like the Catholic canon. And, and the idea that the canon is something that's obvious and is readily apparent when you sit down and read the books, uh, it just doesn't work historically. Yeah. It, it, the facts simply contradict that kind of interpretation. Well, and and I, I hope this doesn't scandalize any listeners in, in saying this, but... To me, you know, the Bible is not a perfect book in the sense that, um, you know, that it can just be read and, and da-da, you get it, you know, everything's there. Right. Like, how do you take something like, uh, and especially as, as believers in Christ who follow him, there's something distinct that makes us different from Judaism or Islam or anything else, and that is that, you know, Christ is our king and he's our lens that we, we look at to interpret scripture, you know, and, and what we know about God, so... 
I always think like, well, what do we do with with these imprecatory psalms? You know, that, and they start saying things like, "I hate my enemy with a perfect hatred," and you know how how wonderful to dash their infants upon the rocks and you know bathe ourselves in their blood and you know things like that. Yeah, and I yeah. go, you know, without the lens of Jesus and and without you know um, Paul saying, "In all things, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts." You know, the Bible can be a be a very dangerous book, you know, because I look at those things and I say, you know, just because it says that doesn't mean Jesus endorses it, you know. And, and that's why we've got to be careful about um, what, what you'd said before about the sola scriptura aspect, that we have to let the church guide us in our understanding and, and help us, I believe, you know, fully in that. But anyway, are you still with me? Absolutely. Yep, I'm here. Okay. Um, well, let's let's move on just a little bit because we could go on for that all day. But I think one thing that that might be interesting to listeners is something we were kind of emailing about. Um, maybe just to start first with a few misconceptions um, about sure. Catholicism, because I think for some people, um, we are like it or not a product of how we were raised and a product of what we were taught, and a lot of that when we start seeking out for ourselves, we kind of find, huh, well, that wasn't exactly right, was it? <laughs> you know? And and I think just because of our lack of dialogue, one thing I, I have against a lot of Protestantism, and I, and I do love a lot of Protestantism, too, I'm not trying to just dog it, but we're not very good about having dialogue outside of our circles, and, uh, and sometimes churches, just like one individual church on my street, we can be very myopic and not ever look outside, to discover what's really out there. So I, I wonder if we could just go through um, a list of misconceptions and talk about them briefly. I, I wrote out about 12, and I think they kind of include things that you had written to me, so maybe we'll just kind of stick with those this morning. Okay. Um, misconception, I've got 12 of them. If we can get through all 12, that's great, but I want to make sure we have time to talk about Vatican II as well. <laughs> but um, misconception number 12, we're going to go backwards uh, and, and work our way to number one. They really, there's no particular order, it's just what I wrote them down as. But that uh, misconception number one, Catholics can sin all they want and then just confess it away. So let, let's hear your thoughts on misconception number 12, Ben. Yeah, I think with a lot of these misconceptions, some of where they come from is that you can look at the history of the church and see different times where there were abuses in these areas. And I think certainly the sacrament of penance uh, confession is an area that has been abused at times, and at times it has been treated like this, where I can do whatever I want, and then I just go to confession, and I'm good. Yeah. Well, that's certainly not what the church teaches. In right. fact, the uh, the church's teaching on penance is very similar to, I think, how a Protestant would view um, screwing up, you sin, and then you pray and ask God for forgiveness. Uh, in both cases, there's a danger where we can treat grace, whether it's coming to us as an individual praying to God or whether uh, it's coming to us through the sacrament of reconciliation in the Catholic Church, we can treat that grace very lightly and feel like it's kind of our get-out-of-jail-free card, hmm. where I think both Protestants and Catholics would say, however this works, however confession uh, and, and forgiveness works, it needs to change us fundamentally. And if we're just treating it like, you know, we can 
keep going on, on sinning. As Paul says, shall we keep sinning that grace may abound? Uh, absolutely not. Uh, it needs to change us fundamentally and draw us to a point where we're not sinning anymore and where, where we have that changed life. And if it's not doing that, uh, I think both traditions would say it doesn't matter what your method is. Um, it's probably not a genuine repentance on your part. If you're using it that way, you're not going to experience genuine forgiveness. Sure. And I and I think, too, that, uh, you know, when I describe that, you can send all you want and just confess it away. That's one of the biggest sins of Protestantism, too. You know, I mean, I, right. our people, it's just like, well, we just don't need to confess or we can just do it ourselves. And And the whole idea of, you know, it is scriptural to actually confess to another person, and it's not just, it's not just because the Bible says it. it. It really is a cathartic thing as well, too. I think it honestly helps release a person uh, when they are actually able to confess it and get that out. And it, it does wonders for a person. It really does. And I think that's such a part of our journey that sometimes we've missed out on because we're afraid of being, I don't know, too Catholic or something. Um, Absolutely. But but definitely, that's something that we're called to do. And uh, and it also it holds us accountable. And that's something that I think a lot of times we run away from. We don't want that accountability. Somebody else is going to know this except for God. And uh, so... But that's again how we how we become better, you know. I think yep. so. Well, let's go on to number eleven misconception, and I, I'm looking forward to talking about this one. Catholics pray to saints. What do you think about that one? Well, this is a complicated one, yeah. uh, and we run into a little bit of trouble because of our language mm-hmm. here and the limitations of how English describes this. Catholics pray to saints. Is it? that true? In a sense, yes, and in a sense, no. Mm-hmm. Catholics do not pray to saints in the same way that we would say we pray to God. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, that is strictly forbidden, and we'll talk about this some more when we get to Mary, I'm sure, but that is strictly forbidden in the Catechism. Worship is reserved for God alone, mm-hmm. period. No exceptions to that. What Catholics do believe is that because we are all united in Christ, all believers are united in Christ, we're also united not only throughout space, but through time. And so we believe that as people die and they move on, in some way they are still present with us through our union in Christ. As Hebrews talks about the great cloud of witnesses Mm -hmm. uh, that's surrounding us, Catholics take that very literally and say, yeah, we are surrounded by those heroes of the faith who have gone before. And part of that, for us, is saying we can, in some sense, communicate with them. We can talk to them. We can ask them to pray for us. So given the Catholic theology that the saints are present with us, at least in some spiritual sense, however that works, and there's a lot of mystery here, and I don't want to pretend to have all the answers about how this works, But as soon as we say that the saints are present with us in some sense, then praying to the saints is really no different than me going to you, Rick, and saying, hey, Rick, i got this stuff going on in my life. Could you pray for me? Right. (laughs) That's really what the Catholic doctrine of the saints is all about, is saying that we're surrounded by these heroes of the faith. They love us. They're there to support us. And we ask them for their prayers. We ask them to petition God on our behalf. And the response I've gotten from some Protestants when I bring up this point is, why do you need that? You can just pray to God directly. Absolutely, that's true. 
but my response to that would be, why do we ask each other to pray? Exactly. That, if, if that's the case, do we need it? I would say yes, actually. I mean, technically, no, I can pray for myself, but our soul, something about us demands that union in prayer. Yeah. The prayer shouldn't be just be a private thing. Uh, and especially with the saints, you know, there's times where something is so personal, I don't necessarily want to ask a friend uh, to pray for the specific de- details. Um, but having that great cloud of witnesses to pray for me, even on those very specific issues, is, is very comforting and very wonderful. And I, and I think it would benefit us all to see prayer as something personal but not private. You know, and, absolutely. And I and I think you know what a what a wonderful way to describe that. And and I'll be honest, you know, I don't, I don't under, have any answers or anything either. And I don't I don't think I pray to saints as a general rule, but yeah. you know, or but I but I think the understanding of that is is we're praying through saints and with saints. You know, the idea that if if Catholics are doing that. And, you know, I've heard people even say, well, they just, they worship them as idols, they put their pictures up. And I think, well, how many of your dead relatives that you love do you have pictures of in your home, you know, that that are there as a remembrance, as a reminder? Um, Does that make us an idol worshiper because we've got grandma's picture hanging on the fridge, you know, (laughs) or whatever? Yes. And there's a sense in which I, I think that when you're coming into... What what I what I understand Catholics would consider the heavenly realm of the sanctuary. You know, it's supposed to represent a heavenly space. Um, you're reminded of these people who've gone before, and whatever that means, whatever I, I'm not a super mystical person, but with that, whatever that means, this great cloud of witnesses um, that we're praying with and through these saints, you know, along with us. And I, you, it's almost like you were making my points I was going to make, because I was going to say, we, we ask each other for prayer and half the time it's just because we want each other to know we don't even really pray for it, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, I love the point about, you know, kind of being like grandma's picture on the fridge or even going to, you know, a cemetery where a relative is buried and kind of having that conversation with them, which I think is very human yeah. to do things like that. Uh, my desktop background right now is uh, an icon painting of St. Augustine, and, and uh, there's something very comforting to me about having that presence there, and, and I, part of why I have that is I'm studying them right now as part of my thesis work for school, um, but being able to realize that, hey, this great hero of the faith, somebody I really admire, you know, it's for me putting that picture up, that icon up, mm-hmm. uh, it's very similar to, like you said, hanging a picture of a relative on on uh, the wall and saying, "Hey, we're family. We're we're in this together." Right, uh, and it's very comforting. And that and that is completely different than uh, pulling a golden calf out of a fire and worshiping it. You know, which is yeah. the spirit of where that all came from of not doing it. You know, so. Uh, let's, let's move on to uh, misconception number ten. The church discourages Bible reading. Yeah, this is one where, again, we have to say that there have been abuses uh, with this in the past, and you can find plenty of people who will point to horror stories from their childhood or whatever of the priest who refused to, to let their parishioners read the Bible or made a big deal out of it. And, you know, we have to acknowledge those things exist. We also have to say that those abuses were wrong, and they go against Catholic teaching. Uh, I can sum this one up very quickly. The Catechism says, point blank, ignorance of the Scripture is ignorance of Christ. Hmm. doesn't get much more explicit than that. Yeah. Hmm. 
very good. And and I think some of that too, you know, if you look at tradition at, at at times, you know, before we had so much access to printing presses and things where people could read the scripture and it was more ready, and before people were educated, you know, there was times in church tradition where the Bible was chained to the pulpit, you know, <laughs> and it was yep. it was for the minister. And, and to some extent, I completely understand that because, as we said before, the Bible in the wrong hands is a very dangerous thing, too, you know. And, and, and so there, there's times that I feel like in church, like, I just want to say, can I have your Bible? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> You have to earn the right to read this. We'll just we'll just help you as the pastors to understand this because you're not getting it yourself, you know. But anyway, yep. and and I don't know if that's right either, but that's how I feel sometimes. So uh, we can at least uh, empathize with the sentiment there. Exactly. So okay. Well, we already touched on this a minute ago a little bit. Let's talk a little bit more. Misconception nine: Catholics worship Mary and are therefore committing idolatry. Yeah, so first of all, everything we just said about the saints applies here. Mm-hmm. Uh, it does get a little bit more complicated because Mary is given a special role of honor in the Catholic Church um, to the point where we would even say that, well, she was born without sin. Now, a couple clarifications on, on that. That's the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. Catholics would say that Mary, at the moment of her conception, was cleansed of all sin, by God, so she was not sinless in the same way that Jesus was sinless. Uh, she was cleansed of that of that sin that she would have been born with, and so Mary's sinlessness in the Catholic Church, uh, in that doctrine, is very much an act of grace, the same as it is for us. Part of the reason why we give special honor to Mary is that Mary is, first and foremost, a picture for us of the Church. She literally carried Jesus inside of her, uh, and just in the same way that we do as a church, we carry Jesus with us. She is a picture of the church in the sense of being fully in union with Christ in a way that we as a church long to be. She's a picture of our sanctification in the sense that she is made holy first and foremost. She is a hope for us that that holiness is possible. and she has that special relationship with Jesus where just as the saints can pray for us, the same is true for Mary, only more so. Now, where Catholic teaching can get confusing is that because we honor Mary so much, it can seem like that line between honor and worship is getting blurred, and that's where a lot of the concerns from the Protestant perspective come in. And what I think is helpful in clarifying that is a metaphor that often gets used in Catholic teaching to describe Mary, that Mary is like the moon. Uh, you look up at the moon on a clear night, and it's just shining, and it's brilliant, and it's glorious. But everything that you're seeing there is a reflective glory. The moon shines because the sun is shining on it. Uh, and the same is true for Mary. She is beautiful and glorious and holy, but her holiness and her glory uh, are a reflected glory. They're a reflection of the sun, hmm. uh, S-O-N in this case. Yeah. And uh, none of that is her own, but all of it is an act of grace. Uh, and in that sense, she again is a picture of what we hope to be as the Church. Sure. And, you know, it's funny you mentioned that, because I wrote a song a few years ago and put it on one of my CDs called Mary's Song, and uh, my my mother's name is Mary, and uh, I wrote this song as a conversation 
that I'm having with Mary, the mother of Jesus, about my mother Mary. And uh, the, the word that the Catholics will use, theotokos, which means God-bearer, or one who bears God, um, that's kind of the crux of my song. And in, in the song I have this conversation that says, you were the first to show us how to carry Christ inside, but my mother was the first to show me. And I bet my mother knows your son almost as well as you because she, she talks to him every single day. And so just the idea reminding us, you know, that was kind of my attempt at um, being a little bit Catholic in my songwriting at that point yeah. was just to remind people that, you know, this this whole idea, I love that what you just said about the moon, the one reflecting the image of God. Um, it, what what a beautiful way to put that. And I've always loved that, that title, God-bearer. And then the fact that we are actually called to do the same, you know, that that's, that's our calling is to emulate that and to bear Christ with us where we go. And so, um, yeah, it's, so it's, it's not idol worship, um, but it, it is a revering. And, uh, and as much as, you know, I think it's okay to revere each other when we, do, when we are like Christ as well. We want to point to Christ at all times. So good Absolutely. stuff. Uh, well, let's move on to uh, misconception number eight. This will be a great one. Catholics aren't Christians. <laughs> yeah, this is this is one of those that always kind of makes me scratch my head. <laughs> Do you know your history when you're saying this? You know, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, brief historical lesson in ten seconds. All Protestant churches started with an event called the Reformation. Yeah. And the Reformation involved a breaking away from the Catholic Church. So Martin Luther was a Catholic monk at the beginning of his life. Uh, John Calvin was part of the Catholic Church. You know, all these reformers who Protestants looked to were once Catholic. Right. Uh, so if Catholics aren't Christians, that really calls the whole history of everyone into question, and we have to say that nobody is really a Christian. Right. Uh, now, to be sure, there are people within the Catholic Church who we would say are not living as Christians, are not truly following Christ in a genuine sense, uh, but you know what? We could say the same thing about people in the Protestant Church. So There's always going to be, uh, as the Scriptures put it, uh, tares among the wheat, yeah. you know, and it's not up to us to judge who that is. That's mm -hmm. completely up to God, uh, and what God chooses to do with that, that that's completely up to Him. Uh, but we acknowledge that, um, but really we're not really saying anything uh, in terms of Catholics not being Christians by acknowledging uh, the fact that there are some among us who are not as faithful as maybe they ought to be. Well, and we're and we're very quick to judge that, um, as you said. You know, we're, we're always quick to point the finger. And if we just look a little bit closer to ourselves, we almost see the exact same accusation could be pointed in Protestant churches from a different perspective, but still doing the same thing, you know, and yeah. that's the amazing thing about it. And um, I, I want to give this example real fast, and, and listeners, I'm not recommending you go watch this movie. In fact, I'd probably recommend if you watch it at all, maybe just watch this one part and then leave the rest alone, because it's pretty foul. <laughs> but um, the movie Dogma by Kevin Smith, um, to me, I don't know if you've ever seen that film, Ben, 
but I haven't no. Well, Kevin Smith, you know, he he identifies himself as a as a Catholic Christian. I don't know how he does because he doesn't <laughs> seem he doesn't seem to have any leanings toward anything even close to Christ in anything he does or any of his actions or language. It's one of those things that's like, okay, well, you, you can kind of tell by a person's fruit. But right. not, not to judge too harshly on him, but he did this movie called Dogma, which was his attempt at trying to sort out his own faith as a Catholic. And um, as all things that Kevin Smith does, the, the, it's extremely vulgar throughout. So I'm not recommending this film uh, to anybody to go out. But if you see this one part, um, he pretty well sums up for me the problem that I think the Protestant Church is having, and maybe that the Catholic Church um, has felt a little bit of too. Um, in the very beginning of the film, a a priest, I think it's a bishop actually, played by George Carlin of all people to. Uh, to pick to play a Catholic priest, um, he's announcing the uh, the friendlier what what does he say um, the friendlier face for the Catholic Church. No more of that depressing crucifix, you know, because <laughs> cause that's that's such a major bummer or something like that. So it says today we're going to unveil Catholicism. Wow! And uh, they pull off this uh, this drape that's over top of the statue. And it's the statue of Buddy Christ, and he's pointing at you, and he's winking his eye, and he's got his thumb up, like <laughs> almost like he's he's giving you the big thumbs up and pointing at you, and he's all happy and smiling and everything. And uh, and he says, and that you know, this is going to be the kinder, gentler face of the Catholic Church. <laughs> and it's honestly, it's one of the funniest and and most telling um, indictments of Protestantism, I think, in some ways, because. Um, in doing that one thing and turning Christ into Buddy Christ, he's everybody's friend and everybody gets it. Um, we've somehow emptied it of its power too, you know. Right. And and uh, th there's a sense in which um, bringing it back to Catholics aren't Christians or whatever. Sometimes we have um, we have taken the sacred away from Christ in our Protestant circles at times. Because we want to be so user friendly, you know, and and we forget that the Psalms talk about this God that thunders and lightnings and quakes, and and um, and I think the Catholic Church is sometimes a way to ground us and help us look back and and remind us of the power and even the seriousness of who God is, you know, that we're not turning him into a Saturday morning cartoon, and in some respects. We have unchristianized Jesus by making him such a caricature in some ways. So absolutely true. Yeah, so, that's a great point. Well, um, well, sorry for that long spiel. It just for some reason that reminded me of that, and I wanted to <laughs> tell you. But if you ever get to see that one little clip, it's about the only part that's really worth seeing in that movie. But um, the but probably find it on YouTube. Or probably just look up Buddy. The rest of the movie. Just look there up, you go. That's right. Look up Buddy Christ, and you'll be able to see it. But uh, okay, misconception number seven. Uh, the Pope is infallible in all things. And uh, Warren, you had some thoughts about that. Yeah, papal infallibility is kind of a complicated topic in the Catholic Church. Uh, first of all, the Pope is not infallible in all things, and thank God for that, because we've had some fairly rotten Popes in our history. Mm -hmm. What the Catholic Church would say is that under very, very rare and specific circumstances where the Pope is commenting on an issue of faith and morals, that what he says is infallible. Now, 
when we get into when has this taken place, I, I believe, and I could be mistaken on this, so don't hold me to this, but I don't believe it's happened in, in a very long time. We're talking 19th century from the last time that mm-hmm. the Pope made an infallible statement under those specific conditions. So we have to say that uh, the vast majority of what a Pope says and does are certainly open to be considered fallible. Hmm. Now, let's take even those cases where the Catholic Church would say, yes, what the Pope is saying is infallible. A couple of caveats. First of all, it's not infallible because he's such a great guy and came up with something, you know, amazing. It's infallible because we believe the Holy Spirit is guiding what the Pope says, uh, just as when the councils meet, like Vatican II, we believe the Holy Spirit is guiding the direction of that doctrine. Um, but even more to the point, what Catholics would say is that it is the raw truth behind what he is saying that is infallible, not the actual words themselves. Mm-hmm. So in other words, there is some room, even within an infallible statement, to kind of pick it apart and say, well, okay, there's a basic idea here that's infallible, but maybe it's being in- expressed in a fallible way. So what the Pope is saying in those infallible moments uh, is still open to interpretation, is still open even to some degree to revision and to further clarification for us to get at that raw grain of truth uh, that the Holy Spirit is guiding them in. Uh, but the actual expression itself may or may not be infallible in its actual words. Hmm. Uh, now, it sounds like we're kind of having it both ways. A little bit, but we're also trying to make room for recognizing our own failures as humans, uh, and the development of doctrine over time. Hmm. Um, and, and you know what, it's, it's interesting too, because my understanding of that, and, and I think you know it better than I do, but, um, you know, like, I think you're kind of alluding to this, but the Pope has to be speaking with full authority of the papacy and not just in a personal capacity. So there is, right. this, there's this communal dimension to it that, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of like, we've got some checks and balances here too, you know, <laughs> uh, to to make sure that this isn't just one person. And as my pastor often says, that it wasn't just the fumes off his cornflakes that morning, you know, that, <laughs> that was getting to him. So, uh, yeah, the Pope doesn't roll out of bed and say, I'm going to make some infallible statements. And here we go. <laughs> I'm going to jog at eight, make an infallible statement. <laughs> exactly. We'll, we'll have, have lunch and yeah, very good. So, <laughs> all right. Um, well, let's move on to, let, let me ask real quick, how much time do you have today? I don't want to take too much of your time. If we need to split this in two, we can, but. Well, I'm doing fine. Okay. Uh, I've got plenty of time. So, okay, great. Uh, this is great. I well, still, let's, I, let's I still may split it into two uh, podcasts by the time listeners actually hear this, but this is, this is excellent. I'm enjoying it so much. So, um, well, let's go to misconception number six. The Catholic Church is opposed to science and rejects evolution. Uh, what, what's your thoughts on that? I think we have to understand here a little bit of the nature of Catholic doctrine. Uh, Catholic doctrine, a lot of times, is not overly specific. So, um, and I'll give an example of this in just a moment. Well, what Catholic doctrine tries to do is more establish the boundaries of what is and is not acceptable belief. So applying that to, um, say, Adam and Eve, what the Catholic Church will not say is that Adam and Eve 
are 100% historical figures, and Genesis is an accurate historical account. Uh, they won't say anything that specific. But they will say, so establish a boundary to saying that there was a primal event of the fall of mankind. Now, within that statement, there's room for a lot of different readings, from that ultra-literalistic uh, interpretation I just described to saying, well, maybe Adam and Eve weren't historical, but this fall took place in a more metaphorical sense, uh, or something like that. So Catholic doctrine establishes those boundaries. Uh, and it does that with the fall of man and the origins of humanity. It does that with uh, creation, where what Catholic doctrine would say is it would establish a boundary of saying that God is involved with creation. He is involved in the creative process. Now, whether you want to say that took place over seven literal days, whether that took place uh, over millions of years in an intelligent design sort of way, or whether it was God kind of, you know, winding things up, and guiding it more in a spiritual sense um, through evolution, or you know, whatever you want to say there, all of those would be acceptable interpretations within Catholic belief. Catholic belief just simply sets up the boundaries and says that as soon as you want to say God's out of the picture entirely, and evolution is 100% natural and having nothing to do with God, right. then you're outside the bounds of what the Catholic Church says is acceptable. Hmm. With Adam and Eve, as soon as you want to say there, they didn't exist in the sense of that there was no literal fall of man, then you're outside the bounds of what's acceptable in Catholic theology. But within those boundaries, there's a lot of room for science and different interpretations, uh, and certainly I think that a lot of Catholics, most Catholics even, would subscribe to a belief that uh, the Earth isn't, wasn't created in seven literal days and that it's older than, you know, 10,000 years or whatever the number would be. Yeah. Well, you know, and you could just be like the Creation Museum and saddle up your dinosaur and, you know, try to make all... <laughs> i got to visit that someday just for the, you know what? Just for the experience of if, it. If you come down this way, I live about an hour from there, so you have to let oh, me know great. if you ever make we'll, it down this way. We'll go have... visit the Creation Museum together. That was... <laughs> I'm afraid that the ceiling may cave in on me as much bad stuff as I said about it, but you never know. Um... <laughs> you and me... <laughs> Well, in the interest of uh, actually letting you hear this whole interview, we went on for quite a while. It's one of the longer interviews I've ever done. So I'm breaking it into two parts, Going Catholic with Ben DeBono. I hope you've been enjoying it so far. Uh, we really dive into some even deeper things than we've already talked about, but the podcast uh, is just getting too long to put into one part, so we're going to have another full episode next week, and you're going to get to hear part two of the conversation. Um, I like doing it like this. I liked uh, recording before the uh, the fact of the matter. Didn't know what was going to happen, but literally just ended the call with Ben, um, and I know you guys are going to enjoy what they have to say. So, um, that's it for this week on Voices in My Head. I hope you have enjoyed it. Oh, oh there's one more thing I wanted to uh, make sure that I talked about. Our former guest, uh, Eddie Kirkland, uh, who was on the show not too long ago, uh, this month in Worship Leader Magazine, they're doing their best of issue. And I just want to say congratulations to Eddie because they picked out their top 15 worship songs of 2012 and uh, it's really where they compile of, of all the worship songs released on albums this year and that are being sung in churches across uh, really internationally not just nationally and um, 
Eddie has written or co-written two of the 15 songs uh, of the top uh, for for 2012. So the top 15 songs from Worship Leader Magazine, uh, two of them were written or co-written by Eddie Kirkland, and uh, we've been corresponding back and forth, and I just could not be prouder of the guy, and uh, very grateful to have had him on the show a couple weeks ago, hoping to have him back uh, in the future. But if you haven't got to hear Kings and Queens, his latest release, make sure you do that. That's all for me this week on Voices in My Head. We'll see you next week for episode number 41 and part two of Going Catholic with Ben DeBono. Thanks for listening to Voices in My Head. Blessings. You've been listening to Voices in My Head, the official podcast of Rick Lee James. If you'd like to know more about me, my ministry, my music, my life, go to my website at rickleejames.com. You can also download my free mobile app from iTunes and on the Android Marketplace. And I'd love this to be a community experience, so if you call 937-505-0162, you can leave feedback, you can give me suggestions for future shows, you can even record comments that I can play on the next podcast. So let's make this something really great together. 937-505-0162. Thank you so much for listening to Voices in My Head, the official Rick Lee James podcast. God bless.